Welcome to this workshop of Black Agenda Report, Black Liberation Strategists in the Age of Exceptionalism. Uh, before we begin our program, we will have remarks by Glenn Ford, who is the executive editor of Black Agenda Report. It will not be his presentation but an announcement from the family of Black Agenda Report. And this is the kind of talk that I don't know how to give and never wanted to give. We have to pay our respects and, and I think uh, collectively thank uh, Bruce Dixon for the service that he has rendered to the struggle for uh, peace, uh, for human dignity, for black liberation, and hopefully for socialism uh, in this country and the world. Uh, Bruce was a real soldier, a soldier in the sense that he was willing and eager uh, to take on any aspect of the liberation struggle and, and to explore all of the questions uh, that face us with the aim uh, of creating the most efficient mechanisms uh, for movement politics. Uh, Bruce had been a soldier in the Black Panther Party uh, under Fred Hampton uh, in Chicago. And in the decades uh, after the crushing of the party, uh, Bruce was that organizer uh, who would go into the housing uh, projects and find out what the folks in the project were talking about uh, and uh, what kind of slogans actually organically would flow from the people's analysis of the conditions uh, that they were facing in the projects or uh, at work sites. Uh, that's what I mean, uh, ex examining all aspects of the problem. Bruce admitted that he became uh, addicted to the bourgeois electoral political game, uh, but it was the only one uh, that folks were playing in Chicago, and it took folks, uh, lots of people, a long time to see that that game was, was going uh, nowhere. But when I met Bruce, it was uh, 2002, and he'd moved uh, to Atlanta. And I remember uh, we had just done a piece in The Black Commentator, which is the predecessor to Black Agenda Report, on Cynthia McKinney's loss to a corporate-backed uh, candidate uh, in her uh, congressional seat in Atlanta. And my headline said something like, uh, Cynthia uh, McKinney uh, and something about a dignified defeat. So I get a letter an email uh, from some guy uh, who says, well, uh, she certainly was defeated, but I don't know how dignified that was. And that was Bruce Dixon. And he then proceeded to do an analysis of why uh, Cynthia McKinney was defeated, uh, uh, because she had been uh, quite popular in that, in that district. And, and it was an analysis. It was not a screed. It was not a rant. It was an analysis. And the black commentator, like Black Agenda Report, uh, analysis is our stock and trade. Uh, so I immediately uh, struck up a conversation with Bruce Dixon that only ended uh, yesterday. 
when he exited the scene. Uh, Bruce Dixon has been part and parcel, left his mark, has been sometimes the prime shaper of Black Agenda uh, Report. Uh, when we say managing editor, uh, he made possible the things that we do uh, that uh, less skilled people like myself uh, cannot do, as well as doing everything that I could do just as well as I could. Uh, so we've lost uh, not just a right arm, but an arm uh, and a leg, uh, and it's going to be quite difficult uh, continuing uh, without uh, Brother Bruce. Uh, we'll try because he was, <laughs> he didn't let multiple myeloma slow him down until it stopped him cold. It, up until uh, not this past Wednesday, but the Wednesday before, he was determined uh, to be here uh, today until uh, the doctor told him to go into the hospital the next day and he never emerged. Uh, but Bruce will never leave uh, Black Agenda Report. Uh, he is a permanent fixture, we must consider what Bruce would have said and how Bruce would have moved this project forward every time uh, we come upon a problem, an idea, or an opportunity. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I think many of you uh, to commiserate with us about the loss of Bruce. Thank you, Glenn Ford. It, it is indeed a very sad occasion, Bruce Dixon joining the uh, ancestors. He was, uh, he was still in his, in his youth. Okay, um, so I bear with me. Uh, the title of our workshop is Black Liberation Strategies in the Age of Exceptionalism. And we know where uh, exceptionalism has gotten uh, U.S. imperialism and its hegemony, its global hegemony. The Black Agenda Report team will discuss late stages of capitalism, the shrinking U.S. empire, and the danger of the desperate ruling class on the wane. This is indeed a post-supremacy problem that we are uh, dealing with. Okay, our first speaker is going to be Raymond Nat Turner, who is our poet in residence at Black Agenda Report. And uh, we're going to do things a little bit backwards because I know you folks are anxious to hear. So we're going to bring Nat on and then I'm going to tell you all of the wonderful things about him. And you will hear for yourself just how gifted he is. All right, Nat, you're on. When our nights are captured or fall on battlefields, as they surely must, we lose brilliant light. We scramble to pry pens, swords, 
spears, bread and roses from stainless steel grips of their icy hands. We scramble to hoist fallen banners temporarily mired in mud and blood even higher. We scramble to staunch rivulets of brine from shattered hearts. When our giants go down, spines straighten, honoring burnished names, immortal legends, divvying up ancient work that created giants in the first place. Here's the FOIA requested redacted part of the story they won't tell you. Baby Bruce was wandering the Midwest with Dorothy and Toto before they picked up the Tin Man in Pittsburgh, before they picked up the Scarecrow on Staten Island, before they picked up the Cowardly Lion in Los Angeles. He had a baby brain, but a huge heart, fully farmed courage to be schooled and steeled at the point of production, becoming a straight-up soldier for the long march, a rank-and-file meet them where they're at, shoe leather, serve the people door-to-door, knocking, troublemaking organizer, shy town, stubborn kind of fella, stubborn as a Georgia mule, refusing to slip on Iceberg Slim, posing as community organizer when legends lost their minds. He had a heart, courage, brain, the barrel of his pen blazing, welcoming me from wilderness, Cali isolation, to fight side by side against the mass man the drone ranger, when icons, slutty professors were dangling on the deporter in chief's dick, he 404 my phone, it was business but personal, covering the waterfront, laughing, joking, non-AMFM friendly language. I just pray they put a Bruce Dixon organizer's app on my phone mistakenly with the malware spyware. (laughs) Poppy, are we there? Are we almost there? Wide-eyed incantation of a child, three feet plus 60 pounds. Exodus leaving the lowland six days before birthday seven. Poppy, are we there? Are we almost there? Beaming birthday celebrant on the bus munching an uncrushed pink frosted cookie from Poppy's beat up backpack. 
Poppy, are we there? Are we almost there? Her small, soft hands celebrating heroics of an unshaven face chasing dreams. Dreams of pine tree scents and small gifts, compliments of the magic of his hands. Dreams of the doll her mother promised before dying suddenly. Dreams of asylum from violence, fleeing extractive capitalism's suction tube tentacles. Poppy also had dreams of Jay Bird, as he called her, teaching school and university with compassion and skill, like she instructed stick dolls he'd crafted from fallen branches. Poppy, are we there? Are we almost there? Springing up and down on her invisible trampoline, Poppy's promises of a Christmas tree and celebration in California racing through her amazed and amazing mind. Poppy was proud. His back burned and ached. He clenched his teeth when she dozed off to sleep. His stomach growled, rattling sunken sides. He went without eating so her belly would be full. He took tiny swigs of water so she'd have enough. Football fans who love players that play through pain. Basketball fans who love players that create their own shots. Does chasing dreams thousands of miles through government gang-infested swamps, bad back, seven-year-old in tow, show up in your thicket of statistics and fantasy? Poppy, are we there? Are we almost there? To her, the bumpy ride, jarring dreams, juggling her belly up and down was an adventure, and Poppy had prepared her for it with bedtime stories where everyone lived happily ever after. Arriving at a border swarming with uniformed thugs, three-fifths human, igloos pumping raw sewage through veins whistling Dixie, prying Poppy and Jay Bard apart, her forehead a 105-degree radiator, body spasming, eyes rolling round in their sockets, tummy evicting the food Poppy fed her, terrorist tricks to breach the border, enter the U.S., as were delirious, distorted, slow-motion last words, Poppy. Are we there? Are we almost there? Now you know why we refer to Raymond Nat Turner as the town crier. Uh, he is artistic director, well, you know, 
I mean, you can judge for yourself how talented he is. He is artistic director of Jazz Poetry Ensemble Upsurge, New York City, and has appeared in numerous festivals and venues, including the Monterey Jazz Festival and uh, a Panafest Ghana West Africa Festival. Uh, festival. He is currently poet in residence at Black Agenda Report. Uh, he has uh, appeared, or rather, he appears on WBAI Tuesday morning show. Also, Ralph Pointer's blog radio, and he is a frequent contributor to Dissident Voices, and he his work appears. Uh, in Black Agenda Report. So uh, can we have a hand again for Raymond Nat Turner? And before I continue, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. My name is Nellie Hester Bailey. I was uh, the founder and director of the Harlem Tenants Council. It's an anti-gentrification, anti-eviction program. We worked in central Harlem and across New York City for uh, decades, uh, and like most organizations, non-for-profit, as well as people, we were displaced in Harlem by the high rents. Uh, in the past, I was an election observer uh, in South Africa's uh, first uh, election, democratic election. I had the uh, pleasure, like a number of people, to meet uh, Nelson Mandela, not really meet, meet, it's sort of like meeting Greek with everyone, and uh, Joe Slovo, who at that time uh, was head of the housing department in the uh, first uh, South African uh, election. Today, I co-host Black Agenda Radio with Glenn Ford, and I am proud to say I am a member of the Barr family. Our next speaker is going to be a woman, I think, who needs no introduction, Margaret Kimberly. Some of you who are familiar with her writing, Freedom Writer, that is uh, published every week on Black Agenda Report website. Margaret has done a number of activities, and she is uh, a member of UNAC, the United National Anti-War Network. Uh, she has appeared in numerous, on numerous uh, TV shows as a uh, guest speaker, including RT, WBAI, uh, and a number of other publications. So I'm happy uh, and very pleased to present to you Margaret Kimberly, who is the senior columnist at Black Agenda Report. Thank you, Nellie. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm not quite myself today, as you can imagine. After uh, losing Bruce Dixon yesterday, I didn't sleep very well, among other things. So I'm, uh, I'm not sure if I'm uh, up to my usual form. And among other things, I, I apologize to Nellie. I didn't uh, give her information for my bio, some things I'm doing lately, which I'll mention briefly. 
among the uh, contributors to an anthology called In Defense of Julian Assange, which you can pre-order now at orbooks.com. And uh, I am also uh, have written my first book, which will be published in February, Prejudential, the History. Thank you. It's called Prejudential, the um, uh, Black America and the Presidents, February of 2020. So um, I'll start out by, uh, by saying, uh, hasta la victoria siempre. And uh, unlike our mayor, I don't know if you saw this news story about our, our glorious mayor, Bill de Blasio, who, uh, for reasons known only to himself, is among the cast of thousands running for the Democratic Party nomination for president. And uh, he was in uh, Florida for the debates, and he was, uh, I believe it was an airport strike, a strike of airport workers, and he says, hasta la victoria siempre, which was fine. Um, but he didn't know, apparently, that the phrase is associated with Che Guevara. And of course, being in Florida, with the large uh, conservative Cuban community, this became a problem. And he quickly retreated. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know who said it, and so sorry, sorry, sorry. And <clears throat> but uh, now that I know it was so, is so connected with Che, I'm going to say it more often, because I do know the meaning. So I think um, we should all, it's now a hashtag. HLVS, you can look it up. But this, um, I tell this story, and it's, it's so easy to poke fun at Democrats these days. And that story tells us the problem that uh, black people have in dealing with, uh, with this system. At this stage in the empire, it's a particularly difficult moment, especially now that the elections have started. And we're told that this is the only way for us to organize, the only way to be heard, the only way to make any changes is through the electoral process. Now, I'm not going to say don't use the electoral process, but Americans are told this is it, this is all, this is all you got. And especially uh, in the wake of the Trump presidency, we are browbeaten into supporting the Democrats. And anyone who didn't vote for the Democrats is blamed, how convenient for them, for Trump being in the White House. So uh, this campaign that started, and there was not one but two debates this week, and I couldn't watch them. It's just too hard for me. But then at the same time, I, I kind of regret it, so I'm, I'm relying on news reports and what my uh, friends have said on uh, social media. So they've begun the, the dog and pony show, and we see how people are propped up by the corporate media, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, who apparently didn't do well in the debates and apparently Kamala Harris came at him and made him look stupid, which isn't hard because he is stupid, as I, I wrote in my column this past week. But a funny thing happened. One of uh, Biden's fundraisers, a man whose name I don't know, named McInerney, he's a check bundler in California, and he said yesterday, I'm not going to raise money for Biden anymore. And that means Biden is toast if the rich people say they're not going to raise money for him. Now recently, just to show you how bad he was, they had to hide him. They've been hiding him from the press, but he did not hide himself from the people who write the checks. 
And uh, he told them that he needed them very badly. And he said, he assured them, nothing will fundamentally change if I become the president. But it doesn't matter now. You know, they always need people who can look good. They have to be good for the brand. And apparently Biden is not anymore. So it's partly funny to me that he's already been shoved under the bus because of his dismal performance. But that also tells us we don't have a democracy. That uh, if the people who write the checks, who bundle the checks, can decide who does or does not become president, then that is proof positive that we do not have a democracy. And I think that's something that has to be said so that people don't spend uh, the next year uh, and some months thinking that there's a democracy for them to protect or restore or bring back or save from the evil Trump. And he is evil, but um, it, we didn't have a democracy before January 2017, so we can't blame him for everything. Uh, so, uh, so now we begin with, uh, the, as I said, the dog and pony show with the debates. And in reading about them and uh, listening to what other people said, it seems to me that, once again, they did not raise any of the issues that are of importance to, to black people in particular, to the whole country. We are living under the threat of war. Donald uh, Trump, it's so hard to read what he will and won't do, but apparently he decided not to start a war with Iran, at least as of last week, who knows, today or tomorrow. And at this very moment when uh, the major powers are taking sides, what are Democratic candidates saying? These people, this party that black people cling to, uh, that we're told are our only saviors, what are they saying about war? They're either saying nothing at all, or they give this mealy-mouthed double talk. Uh, the president has to come to Congress before he starts a war. Well, then what are you going to say if he comes to Congress? Are you going to say yes, or are you going to say no? That means they would say yes if he did go to them and make uh, uh, a good enough case. So we have a couple of people taking an anti-war stance, but those are the people dismissed by the corporate media. And not only are we dealing with uh, the war, that conventional warfare that we all know of, bullets and bombs, but we also have sanctions, which are not new to the United States. Uh, sanctions have been in use, for example, against Cuba since um, for almost 60 years. In recent years, the Trump administration has really ramped up sanctions. Uh, and a study recently indicated that sanctions have killed 40,000 people in Venezuela alone. And let's just remember something about U.S. government sanctions. They not only mean that um, uh, Americans or uh, businesses or the government cannot do business with the targeted nation, but any other nation that does so is also targeted. And that means U.S. sanctions are international sanctions. That means that no one can do business with Venezuela or with Iran or with Zimbabwe without also suffering America's uh, threats of, of force and impoverishment. Iran went through this process of the, the so-called Iran nuclear deal 
uh, in exchange for sanctions being uh, lifted or relaxed. Trump unilaterally pulls out. Uh, Iran waits a year, a full year, waiting for the Europeans to make good on their promise and do something to help them. Of course, they don't. And now they say they will resume uranium enrichment. But who do the media tell us is the villain? The villain is Iran. It's very interesting watching the news story of the shootdown of the drone, which was not in international airspace. It was in Iranian airspace. But this is a moment for the people who we're told are representing our interests to say something. But of course, when they do say something, it's all about being tough with Iran. It's being tough with Russia, being tough with China, being tough with somebody. But no one, or very few people, I should say, expressing an anti-war voice. And these issues do concern the entire country, but they concern black people in particular. This is a, a moment when we need to revive, and many of us are reviving that position that black people always had. We were always the people most skeptical of war. We were always the people who questioned what our country said about other countries. That we suffered after Obama became president, and he's still hanging around, so I guess as long as he's alive, we'll still have to fight against that. But um, we must separate ourselves from these people that we are told are our only savior. Have they talked about mass incarceration? Now, I understand Kamala Harris is calling herself a progressive prosecutor. She was a progressive prosecutor. I don't know how prosecutors get to be called progressive, um, especially her putting uh, black mothers in jail if their kids skipped school and uh, fighting against a prison overcrowding measure. But um, she could be the next one that they prop up now that Biden uh, flunked his test. But we can't be fooled by her either. We've, been, we've seen this movie. We know the ending. So they don't talk about mass incarceration except to lie, the ones who helped the mass incarceration system, like Harris. Unemployment, raising the minimum wage, all of these things that people need and want are not being discussed. And the person most identified with raising some of these issues is Bernie Sanders, and the reason there are uh, how many people running for president among the Democrats is to 20, 20 some odd, to make sure that he doesn't get the nomination. So uh, this is where we are. And uh, it's going to be funny to see, you know, as of a week or so ago, most black politicians were backing Biden. They were excusing his racist remarks that go back decades. He had the protection of Obama, and he was chosen by Obama, I think, for that reason. He was chosen so that Obama could make clear, as if he hadn't already by the time he chose a running mate, that he wasn't going to do anything for black people. But now he doesn't have that protection anymore, and it all came out, and we saw who the black misleaders, as we call them at Black Agenda Report, we saw whose interests they serve. So it'll be interesting to see. It'll be funny to watch uh, how they try to weasel out of uh, supporting this man who now the rich people aren't supporting anymore. So uh, I started off by talking about uh, Bill de Blasio and his you know, comedic attempts to be, to be uh, leftish. 
But I, I think he exemplifies all the problems we have with Democrats, all the problems we have with uh, people who call themselves liberal and how worthless they are to us. And we have to also talk about what happens if a Democrat wins in 2020. What will happen for black people? It's pretty clear that our choice comes down to the overt racist versus the covert racist. Uh, we have a, a party where, and it's not just Biden uh, who bragged about the crime bill. That was Bill Clinton's crime bill also. And the man that uh, we were told we had to support. So we're back there again. Even when we win, we lose. And we're going to keep losing unless we jettison the whole project. Uh, unless we begin the process of leaving the Democratic Party. I think that is essential for all progressives. And people may call themselves progressive or left. We must leave this party. They are the problem. They give uh, an illusion. They live on past history of uh, decades. It's been a very long time since they did anything for the people. We need a real people's party, a real workers' party, a real peace party, and it's not them. So at this uh, moment, when the empire is in such crisis, it's important for uh, those of us who are come to events called Left Forum, it's important for us to stake out new ground. It's important for us to say it is not with the Democrats. And we have to be brave. We can't let people tell us it's our fault if Trump wins or any uh, Republican wins. My response, well, I have several responses to that. First of all, how do you raise a billion dollars? Hillary Clinton raised $1 billion. How do you raise a billion dollars and you're not the one in the White House? You, you raise that much money, you couldn't get 80,000 more votes, roughly, that she needed in those states that flipped? Uh, well, you can't if you're spending all your time covering up your dirt and trying to create dirt for Trump, then you can't do something simple like a get-out-the-vote effort. Then we have to talk about the fact that black people's votes are stolen. Voter suppression efforts all across the country that are increasing. And not just suppression, but, suppression, but outright vote theft. It has been proven in states like Michigan, which Hillary Clinton lost by just 10,000 votes. There were areas where black people's votes just were not counted. And that doesn't come up. It doesn't come up even with the uh, Democratic Party. So um, I, I think to, to sum up, it's pretty clear that we have to be unafraid. It is essential, in fact, at this moment in history, that we escape from uh, the bonds of uh, this corruption that um, is hurting people all over the world. Uh, I, I heard this morning briefly the, <clears throat> the G20 summit is happening in Japan, and they're already trying to weasel out of the climate change accords. The planet is in, in peril. Europe has experienced this horrible heat wave. This is happening all over the world. So we're talking about life and death for everyone. So the Green New Deal, which it's so funny to me, the Greens were supposed to be the villains that caused uh, Trump to win, but the Democrats steal uh, the program, or steal the name of the program at any, way, at any rate, to try to make it look like they're the ones who are actually doing something. And there are people all over the world who are doing things. I, I don't know if you've seen the news story from Germany, where people literally blocked a coal mine, a new coal mine, to prevent it from opening. 
And that's the sort of thing we have to do. We have to accelerate the crisis. We only get change when the people bring uh, crisis to the system. And watching these debates, I guess you can watch them if you want to. I guess you have a stronger stomach than I do. It's okay. But uh, we can't get fooled by this again and think that, you know, uh, uh, what's her name? Elizabeth Warren is better than this one or this one is better than that one. They're, it's all a setup for us. And this is the moment to turn our backs on this uh, charade. It's our moment to stake our claim, to plant our flag elsewhere, and to stop supporting this system, which is taking us all down. So with that, I thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Margaret uh, Kimberly. If I may, I will exercise a privilege as the moderator. Uh, when we talk about Iran being in possession or moving toward the development of nuclear arms, let us not forget that the country in the region that has nuclear arms and an arsenal is that of Israel. It is believed that Israel has from 200 to 400 warheads. They stockpile nuclear weapons for the U.S. And we know from a, their whistleblower, uh, Mordecai Van Nunu, uh, who blew the whistle on their so-called secret um, uh, center uh, arsenal, uh, that in fact it was hardly a secret because the U.S. government knew about it. And to be quite frank, and this is my editorial, not anyone else, if we're talking about Russiagate and the interference in American elections, who, who, who other than Israel fits that bill? And as Chris Hedges and others, Grimaldi and others tell us, uh, they in fact, Israel in fact, has corrupted our Congress. Uh, we know that uh, uh, officials are targeted. Uh, the, uh, the Congress is well funded by Israel. So we have to have a, a truth perspective, a critical analysis of the facts. And these are facts that one will not find in the uh, U.S. coverage. And we need to be very clear about that. When you have a religious figure in Israel talking about it's okay for soldiers to rape Palestinian women, then we have reached an all-time low, to say the least. And one need not go into the uh, treatment of the Palestinians and Jared uh, Kushner's uh, unveiling of this peace initiative is uh, the occupation of Palestine repackaged. Our next speaker is going to be Danny Haifang, who is a regular contributor to Black Agenda Report. He has been involved in anti-war and anti-imperialist organizing and journalism since 
2010. He is currently a graduate student in social work and lives in New York City. He is co-author of the new book, American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, a people's history of fake news from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. And I guess that title in and of itself tells us what we are confronted with with respect to fake news. And uh, here is Danny. Uh, thanks, Nelly. So I wrote on my remarks, I always write up remarks, a word about Bruce. It's been quite a rough 24 hours to 48 hours. And uh, a word about Bruce is kind of ridiculous because I don't think we have enough words that we could say about him in all of his service to the people. I will say that he was very important to me uh, when I first came around Black Agenda Report. You know, I had done labor organizing. I had been, you know, part of Occupy Wall Street. I was really confused about the Black Lives Matter movement, especially uh, I had been involved a little bit in that, and I was getting a lot of backlash because I was affiliated with Black Agenda Report, and Black Agenda Report was making criticisms of the Black Lives Matter network organization and of various strands of that movement in order to move it forward. And because I was associated with Black Agenda Report, uh, there was a lot of ill feelings, uh, and I was in Boston at the time. And so I could just call up Bruce, and he would really advise me and really show me what discipline I needed to remain committed to the truth. And I think that's one thing that I really take away from him and his legacy, and I hope that we can all carry it forward. So... So I'll just begin. I have some brief remarks, and I think the real question that I'm trying to answer, and I think we all are, is, you know, what is the role for those of us uh, who are oriented toward the struggle of the working class, like myself, in the struggle for peace, and who take our cues from the black liberation movement, which, uh, as we all know, the left in general and the black liberation movement has been in retreat for some time. There are many right answers to this question and many wrong ones, uh, but one of the most important tasks that I see right now is the development of an anti-imperialist political consciousness. Anti-imperialism is a higher level of theoretical analysis than simply opposing war, as important as that is. New polls have shown that U.S. voters in the Republican Party camp are actually more anti-interventionist than those in the Democratic Party camp, and that was pulled around the question of Syria in 2013 when Obama was looking to draw his red line and bomb that country into the Stone Age. Anti-imperialism is a revolutionary political orientation that breaks through the limitations of the two-party duopoly. It serves as an ideological framework from which organizations like the Black Alliance for Peace and others have attempted to take up. To me, anti-imperialism is the only antidote for U.S.-led global austerity. Bernie Sanders' anti-austerity platform, branded as democratic socialism, has made him both the most popular politician in the U.S. and the politician that has been most attacked by the Democratic Party. His demands, however, are not anti-imperialist in scope and thus fall short of a legitimate challenge to austerity. In many ways, they don't fit the category of anti-war either. Indeed, Sanders is opposed to some wars, such as the potential U.S. invasion of Iran, 
the Saudi-led war, but U.S.-backed invasion of Yemen, and the, his historic opposition to U.S. support for Contras in Central America during the 1980s. The New York Times even called Sanders, quote-unquote, foreign minister of Burlington, Vermont, when he was a politician there, the mayor, in response to this anti-war history. And the use of this anti-communist slur really shows how anti-war politics in all forms across the entire ruling class are wholly unacceptable, regardless of how selective they may be. But Sanders is running within the belly of the war party, so we really can't get an understanding of imperialism from him. And we also can't develop an understanding of imperialism from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or her affiliates, whose speeches continue to invoke American exceptionalism and nationalist pride around the U.S.'s role in World War II, for example. The leftish elements in the Democratic Party have little problem with the fact that U.S. military supremacy is the backbone of U.S. imperialism. Any Democrat who dares challenge the war machine is effectively marginalized. We see this right now, even though she's far from an anti-imperialist. Tulsi Gabbard has been blacked out from major polls and corporate media networks for just uttering the notion of anti-interventionism. When she has been discussed, it is to smear her as a Putin's puppet or a dupe of Russia, despite her long history in the U.S. military. Anti-imperialism is more than just anti-interventionism. It is a materialist analysis of the central role of finance capital in the current epoch of global capitalism. Finance capital is the dominant force of the world capitalist system at this time. There are good reasons why the International Monetary Fund has warned against the effects of corporate debt, why the U.S. possesses $1.6 trillion in student loan debt, or why the U.S. government carries trillions of dollars worth of its own national debt, as they call it. Monopolies rule, and the banks are king. Finance capital has become fat from austerity and creates whole markets for itself out of the misery of capitalism. U.S. capitalism has become dominant, dominated by finance capital precisely because the inherent contradictions of the system have turned into antagonisms. Capitalists derive profits from labor, which is a really important concept, and do so by increasing the rate of exploitation, paying workers less, and speeding up production by spending money on technology and investing in it. Competition between capitalists toward these ends have led to an unprecedented but inevitable level of capital concentration. Monopolization has driven the conditions of the vast lot of humanity into barbarity and has simultaneously increased the cost of technological investments in production and in the military, which are wholly interrelated, to maintain the super profits of the super rich. The parasites in finance capital have swooped to pad the profits of major corporations and the ailing living standards of the poor with no shortage of debt schemes. Since 2008, household corp households, corporations, and governments worldwide have taken out $43.8 trillion of debt. The sector of finance capital comprises of over 40% of all U.S. corporate profits, up from just 10% 30 years ago. What makes democratic socialism neither anti-imperialist nor socialist is that it does not center the proletariat or the oppressed in the making of history. Black America created the value and continues to create the value and wealth of this empire, and workers all over the world remain at the center of production of the large but largely fiat-based profits of finance capital. 
Without the complete and utter immiseration of the working class and oppressed, finance capital in Wall Street would wither away. Privatization, predatory lending, and endless war are all preconditions to finance capital's hegemony, which help it devour the economic landscape. Anti-imperialism is a necessary intervention because it is not just a narrow program that reforms individual aspects of the imperialist albatross. It is a spear in the heart of that albatross, the struggle for the complete transition of power from the exploiting to the exploited classes. So the question really is, what, is there a successful example of anti-imperialism in the world today? I think that there is a feared example of anti-imperialism in the world today that must be discussed in all leftist circles and organizing and activist efforts, and that's China. Leftists of many political persuasions, however, especially in the United States, claim that China is no longer a socialist country. Some claim that it's an imperialist country seeking to devour Africa whole. Yet many of China's most powerful industries, such as the Huawei Corporation, which has made the news uh, due to the U.S. jailing of their COO, it's owned uh, by 90% by a trade union committee. China has lifted 800 million people out of poverty since 1978, and over that same period, real wages for the bottom half of the country have risen by 401%. Real GDP growth in China has averaged 10%, well above the sluggish 1% to 3% growth experienced in the United States since the 2008 economic crisis. China is not merely an emerging world power. It is an ascendant alternative to U.S. imperialism. Again, leftists criticize China for allowing capitalist free market forces to invest within the country. During the swelling global economic crisis of the late 1970s and early 1980s, China had to decide, become the first fallen soldier in the war against socialism, or adjust and protect not only the revolution, but also the imperative of raising the standards of living for the people. The People's Republic has set its sight on curbing predatory, volatile, and warmongering hostilities of the United States by offering an economic development model to the planet's most impoverished peoples. This is what the New Silk Road, the One Belt, One Road initiative, seeks to accomplish with over $1 trillion of public spending on infrastructure projects across the global south. China's respect for international law and its development goals offer a real-time example of anti-imperialist progress, not perfection, but progress, in a historical moment where the U.S. is waging war on the entire planet to curb the rise of the People's Republic. The only path forward from austerity is anti-imperialism. This doesn't mean that the Sanders camp or the large majority of people in the United States who favor reforms such as the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, or uh, other such policies should be negated, ignored, or condemned. What it means is that without a tireless struggle against the forces of imperialism, we lose sight of who and what is at the center of austerity. We end up falling into the politically suicidal and reactionary trap of national chauvinism, white supremacy, and American exceptionalism. The struggle to develop a black liberation strategy is dependent not only on the objective conditions of systemic failure, but also in the subjective effort of the whole left to defeat the forces of reaction that exist within its own ranks. And Margaret Kimberley did a great job talking about how the Democratic Party is the biggest problem. The future of humanity depends on the anti-imperialist struggle within the belly of the beast. 
A handful of individuals own more wealth than the bottom half of the world's population. Julian Assange is being tortured behind bars in the United Kingdom, while dozens of key leaders in the black liberation movement and affiliated movements continue to experience what has been decades-long torture within U.S. prisons. All the while, oligarchs such as Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Kamala Harris, and the like display fake gestures of resistance to the big orange menace, Donald Trump. Austerity lays at the roots of these dire conditions. Reversing the course of political, economic, and social collapse will require a massive upheaval not yet seen in the history of the United States. While there is no crystal ball as to if or when such an upheaval will occur, we must understand that the black liberation movement is our best hope for survival and that anti-imperialism is a key quality in the people's antidote to austerity. Thank you. Our next speaker is uh, Glenn Ford. Glenn Ford is the executive editor of uh, Black Agenda Report. He is a veteran journalist. Uh, He co-founded America's Black Forum in 1977. ABF was the first nationally syndicated black news interview program. He is author of The Big Lie, analysis of U.S. press coverage of the Grenada invasion. Uh, Glenn Ford. Power to the people. Power to the people. You know, when, uh, when my uh, brother uh, was killed six years ago, uh, it took me about four months Uh, before uh, my mind was right uh, and I wasn't uh, in a state of dysfunction that probably looked very much like Joe Biden on television the other day. And so I I don't know uh, how long this period of dysfunction is going to last, but I'm in it right now. Uh, So uh, please bear with me. Uh, The uh, theme of this session is Black Liberation Strategies in the Empire of exceptionalism. And we chose that title for several basic kinds of reasons. It reaffirms our commitment to black liberation and also our commitment to socialism. And black liberation is socialism, and socialism must mean black liberation. Black America is the most left-leaning, the most socialist-minded constituency in the country, and many studies have shown that. The reason that many folks on the left fail to recognize this fundamental political fact is that black people insist on defining the terms of their liberation, not just their liberation from capitalism, the capitalism that made them property, but a liberation that provides the material basis for black self-determination. And for that, you need to have socialism. So it is all one piece, and we recognize the black self-determination component being the forward point of the spear. It's why people get agitated and say, get up off me and give me my space so that I can determine what I'm going to do next. But the end goal is socialism. We insist 
on self-determination and on a socialism that serves these black self-determinationist aspirations. But there is one thing that is certain. No transformative change is remotely possible in the United States unless black America is fully mobilized and leading the charge. And we have seen when that is not the case, then the other elements in the American panorama seem to get confused. What, what do the black folks do and how come they're so, they're so quiet? This is another way of saying that we need a revived and reinvigorated black social justice movement that acts in solidarity and in collaboration with other social justice and peace movements in this country and throughout the world. Uh, this kind of movement requires skill sets and a range of organizations of all kinds. But the component that has had been missing from the black political scene uh, and missing basically since the uh, demise of the mass movement of the 60s, what's been missing is organs of political analysis. And that's why we created Black Agenda Report back in 2006. Uh, we wanted to at least get close to answers to the questions like what is to be done. A popular organ of analysis, one that regular people can read, like Black Agenda Report, is also supposed to tell you what time it is so that we can act accordingly. Well, the time right now is late stage capitalism, very late in the stages of capitalism. It's our duty to figure out what the rulers are most likely to do to us and what we should be trying to do to them to bring this capitalist era to an end as bloodlessly as possible so that we can get closer to black liberation and socialism and a world at peace. The defining characteristic of this late-stage capitalism is that the lords of capital, the financial overseers, have imposed a global race to the bottom in which all of the world's workers must compete with each other to sell their labor at ever lower and lower prices. The Chinese did not impose this regime. American and European capitalists imposed it. U.S. workers' living standards have been falling for two generations under globalist capitalism. The decline in U.S. living standards and in especially economic security is not a side effect of globalization as it is sometimes described in the corporate media. It is the intended effect of this global regime that's being imposed. The capitalist imperial consensus, they are agreed on this, is to destroy all impediments to the most profitable exploitation of both labor and technology everywhere in the world. That means that only, not only labor rights, but all democratic rights must be curtailed. You can't do one without the other. 
The capitalists are determined to make money the old-fashioned way by ruthlessly driving down wages and rendering the vote and other democratic rights, which we used to call bourgeois rights, irrelevant to the actual governance of society. In other words, it doesn't matter how you vote. You're not going to get your way because of the mechanisms of capitalist dictatorship. At the same time, the lords of capital are relentlessly privatizing what's left of the public sphere and commodifying and financializing every aspect of human relations. Everything you do with the lights on or the lights off. In other words, the capitalists are step by step, creating a dictatorship like we have never seen. And I mean that literally. This is the brand new world that they're creating. We can see this brand new world, then uh, that it has arrived, in that even the definition of job is no longer what it used to be. I find it confusing when people talk about I have a job or I'm going to get a job and I know that the employment that they're talking about is a relationship in which the employer uh, has no obligations whatsoever uh, to the worker and can let that worker go at will and uh, one in which there are two often two classes of workers on the same premise, uh, premises. <laughs> uh, one, the contract worker uh, who has no rights, and one, the more formally employed uh, worker who will soon find themselves in the other person's category. And yet there is no nationwide social uh, debate about this development. That is the nature of of employment is now something that is uh, quite different. These are not exceptions. 90% of the new jobs that were created under Obama after the great meltdown were these contract jobs, not really jobs with no obligations. That is the world of the future, a future of absolute insecurity. And I don't mean just insecurity in terms of getting a job, but insecurity in terms of what is the nature of my relationship to this, these people who own this place that I go to every day. A kind of total insecurity. Now, one can understand that that is the kind of society that will require a different kind of policing. Obviously, the mode of policing a population must change as the relationship of the rulers to that population changes. And so if there is no obligation on the part of the rulers to a worker, the social contract between the people who own <laughs> basically the society and those of us who just live in it has been revoked. When we're looking at these shit jobs, that is the revocation of the larger contract to get along at all with these bastards who have billions of dollars. If they won't even make a commitment uh, to something as elemental as a job, it is quite uh, nightmarish contemplating uh, the ramifications of this uh, new society. But we need uh, to do that. And we need to have that kind 
of dialogue about a nightmare that has already arrived. And, and if we understood the real plans of the ruling class, which I've just outlined, never-ending austerity, deepening insecurity, inexorable erosion of what bourgeois liberties remain, and the irrelevance of the bourgeois electoral system. If we really understood that, I think that movement folks uh, would be formulating different kinds of plans. Uh, but the most important thing to do is to break this news to the people as a whole. If folks understood what was in store for them, what the austerity dictatorship really is, I believe that even the reddest redneck would revolt from this degradation of humanity. And people can see it if we point it out to them. Uh, see the beginnings of this new society with the jobs that they are all quite aware of. But I think that even in left circles, these bourgeois democratic narratives and the skill with which both the corporate media and the social media have in focusing our eyeballs on what they want us to look like, short circuits are better judgment in terms of setting political priorities. So we want to talk about Biden and how he looked so bad. And uh, we want to root, even if you're a Black Agenda report, secretly for Bernie Sanders, even not, not as our hero, but as somebody who can contribute to breaking up that dangerous institution called the Democratic Party, probably more dangerous to us than the Republicans. But we're all talking about that and this New dictatorship of austerity strengthens every day. So that's what I want to leave you with uh, today, to think about what is taking shape right in front of us, but which, which most of us in our political work pay not enough attention uh, to. And that's, that's the equivalent of not paying attention to reality and getting too lost in their as Danny would say, they're fake news and narratives. Thank you. Before we open, oh, and pardon me, I meant to say I hear so much about the age of Trump, black liberation strategies, and the empire of exceptionalism. So please forgive my slip on that. Uh, the, the age of Trump is imprinted, in, in I mean, imprinted rather in my brain. Sorry about that. So we're going to have uh, Raymond Nat Turner to come up, do a couple of poems, and then we'll open uh, the floor up to Q and A. Um, you know. With um, our brother Bruce checking out, it, it you know it was a very dark side of that for me, and so um, maybe on a lighter note, if you will. <laughs> There is a bomb in Killary. Boom, 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 boom. Q 
wing. Boom, boom, there is a bomb. In, in killery, boom, 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 boom. Enriching thugs like Boeing, boom, boom. There is a bomb, boom, boom, boom. In killery, boom, 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 boom. Women and children die, boom, boom. There is a bomb, boom, 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 boom. killery, boom, 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 boom. Bleed the people dry boom, boom. Cause she can lie like Cheney Boom 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 And she can kill like Callie Boom 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 You wouldn't want to meet her at midnight in the alley Boom boom there is a bomb in killery, boom, 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 boom. A thief, a thug, clown in a rug, a tweet, DC, a lie, a cheat. Embellish, embroider, a lying disorder, a myth, a fable, a bit unstable. Flim, flam, clap, trap, bunkum, bull crap. An empty wagon, a puffed up dragon, a whopper, a fib, you peep from your crib. A sham, a fake, a major mistake, pathological lying, false flag flying, a grope, a trope, bad jokes, breaststrokes, a grope of a crotch, another man notch, where they debauch over water and scotch, a trumped up story. Cock and bull glory, a foot in the mouth for strategy south. Pie in the sky, a bare-faced lie, a pig in disguise. Fooling some eyes, playing fast and loose with Jim Jones juice. A masquerade, a Nazi parade, fake great nation, same plantation. A bug in the hall, a fly on the wall, a parade in July, another big lie, a wink of an eye, enough I'll cry. A thief, a thug, clown in a rug, a tweet, deceit, a lie, a cheat. Time for feet in the street, sustaining street heat. Yeah, that's good. Okay, folks, uh, we're going to open uh, this up for Q&A, and uh, what we're going to do, we have about half an hour, we will take uh, a stack of three, we'll let the panelists answer that, and then we'll go into another new stack of three people, okay? So can we start? My name is Gordon Barnes, I am a member of the Internationalist Group, I'm also an adjunct uh, professor at CUNY, where I teach history. Thank you for your, for your presentations and condolences on the loss of your, of your comrade, Bruce Dixon. In terms of black self-determination, uh, I think that if we want to overthrow capitalism, right, which is the only way in which to achieve socialism, that we need revolutionary integrationism, not black self-determination, not separatism. Historically, 
the black population in the United States does not constitute a separate nation, right? I do not think that the black population would be able to survive, right, if they were to secede and there was a capitalist United States still remaining, right? And also that, that black secession would likely be black capitalists where you would still have the oppression uh, of black workers by black capitalists as you have under capitalism to, to a lesser degree. So there's that. Uh, in, in terms of Bernie Sanders, you know, contributing to, to the breakup of the Democratic Party, um, my question there is, well, if, if we look at what happened in 2016 when he ferried in uh, all the votes to Hillary Clinton, right, what, what is different now? Is he not going to do the exact same thing if he loses, right? And, and move all of those votes for people who are ostensibly opposed to the Democrats back into uh, the Democratic Party. One, one more point, just on, on, on China, um, if, you'll, if you'll permit me. Uh, I, I agree with, with much of, uh, of what you said about China. It's, it's not a capitalist uh, country, though it has um, capitalist penetration. Uh, it is not imperialist, as many leftists like to say, but I would not be so, so easy with, with their praise, with, with praising the, the turn to the market economy in, in the 1970s, because with that you have uh, the support of the Pinochet regime, you have the support um, of the forces against the MPLA uh, in Angola, um, and, and without anyone who knows, that was an integral struggle in bringing down apartheid. So, so my question there is how um, do you understand what is, what is a Stalinist state, which I would say you need to have a political revolution to oust the Stalinists. You seem to be confusing uh, the simple term black self-determination uh, with the necessity for separation. Actually, the international law and other covenants uh, guarantee self-determination to all people. But you, you imbrued in, in the word with uh, some kind of automatic separatist uh, imperative. In fact, in a landmark uh, survey conducted by Dr. Mark Michael Dawson in 1994, which uh, at that point was the biggest and most scientific survey of black Americans ever taken, Dr. Dawson found that a majority in the 50s of black Americans did see black America as a nation within a nation. That's the term. Uh, but only a small minority would opt for separation. Separation is what people with self-determination may choose or may not choose. But nobody's, uh, certainly Glenn is not talking about separation. What we're talking about is the socialism that we envision will be shaped largely by the black folks who are struggling against this capitalist uh, system. That's what self-determination is about. And the relationships between people, especially people who are struggling as allies, is something that uh, in the course of time is always worked out. That is, people decide how they're going to live together and, and coexist. There are no rules, and I don't know where you get, uh, get off uh, saying self-determination means uh, separation. In terms of Bernie Sanders, the, sa the threat that Bernie Sanders represents, and Warren does too, is the threat to austerity. Austerity is the consensus regime of, of the rulers. They keep it in place and rigorously defend it everywhere in the world. It is their, it is their fundamental world view. It is their scheme. They're not going to let us bust up austerity without a fight. And these 
supermajority-backed proposals like Medicare for All, like a Green New Deal, and also a dignified wage, since these people don't even want to define what a job is. These are threats to austerity, and that's why the Democratic Party is resisting them, and that's why they have gone to such great lengths this early in the game to isolate and sabotage Bernie Sanders. Uh, because he represents the threat to austerity, and the threat to austerity is a threat to the heart of their regime. And it has nothing to do with sheepdogging, which is what you were talking about, and which was the term coined by Bruce Dixon. Bruce Dixon. Right, right. Uh, Just quickly, with reference to the first part of your question, are you thinking about the the Black Belt Nation that was... uh, that was proposed, huh? Is oh yeah, yeah. But I'm just trying to ha- add uh, uh, or clarify a, a historical context to your question, and that would be the Black Belt Nation. Right. Okay. All right. So we got that. Would anyone like to respond right away? Yeah. I hope about China. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just address the point about China, and we can't get into the mistakes of the Sino-Soviet split and all that represented. Uh, China, as I said, is imperfect, and you know its socialist system has had to make a lot of adjustments, and I think what we really have to take into account is how China has been militarily surrounded by the United States in imperialism, and since its revolution, has always been under the threat of war. And the Cold War legacy still lives on into today. So for all of China's mistakes, and we have to understand them as mistakes, we also have to understand as inside of the United States, our task is to ensure that we have a balanced analysis, that we understand contradictions, and how socialism is never going to be pure. And we have to see that China's sacrifices are, are important, as flawed as they may be, and that China is really the future of the world, and that if our struggle against the U.S. military state is successful, then we don't know, we really can't see how China's impact on the world uh, will benefit people until that occurs. So, you know, as, so as much as the Chinese Communist Party has had has divisions inside of itself and has been moving leftward over the course of especially Xi Jinping's era, we also have to understand that it is always a struggle, that class struggle does not end with socialism. And China has been going through that since 1949, and I think it's you know in a going in a positive direction. And we need to do everything in the United States to ensure that the future of humanity is secure. And I think Defending China is one of the best ways we can do that. I'd like to ask, what do you detect any splits in the, inside the ruling class of any kind of fight or any fractures through which we can then pump our other movements to widen those fractures? Like you made some reference to maybe Trump stopped the war or Iran or something, but other fundamental differences that currently that you can point to that would enable us to you know, move forward and take advantage of. Okay, uh, I think everyone got that. Let's see if there's one more. So first off, I would just like to pay my respects to Bruce Dixon as well. I never knew him. 
but I know he was a good man and a good comrade, so I, I am really sorry for the loss on that. Uh, my question is really for Danny Haifong more than anything else, and I think that as socialists, we're, we're here for bread, but we're also here for roses. That's a great thing. And, you know, if economic prosperity and economic development were the metric of how socialist a regime is, then all of us here, we'd be singing the praises of Singapore. But, uh, which really just makes me have to ask, like, how do you defend the Chinese state's repression of independent union organizers, its massive surveillance state, and its brutal oppression of its weaker population? Okay, I think we got that. Because we answered uh, the first question, I'll take one more so we can move things along. Is there another hand? Um, I just have a question in terms of socialism and black people. I don't know why black people have to be such purists when it comes to socialism. And everybody else can go through whatever goddamn stages they want to go to. If separatism is nihilistic for us, at the rate that we're dying already, then it's just a question of, do you die like a dog, or do you die fighting for freedom? <laughs> Secondly, we're already separatists. That's why I'm here. I said I wasn't coming back to the reform. But I'm here because we got 2,000 slaves in Louisiana who should have been free because we just overturned the 10-2 legislation. If we can push back against this, 2,000 to 9,000 people making six cents an hour working for Louisiana should be free. Now, from my point of view, I can give a damn what they call themselves. When they come out, if they fight for freedom, I'm joining them. And if we get to socialism, and I will be fighting for it, yes, but I'm not going to let the condition of socialism stop me from fighting for freedom. And no other people on this planet has been put in that basket. Oh, you're separatists. Oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. What we say is, do you fight the same devil we fight? And if you fight the same devil we fight, we join you. We critique you like that gentleman did there, but we don't make that decision for freedom. Queen Mother Moore said, we are a non-self-governing, captive people in this country, and we should act accordingly. And yeah. I know you will travel Queen Mother Moore if you don't. Well, you should be I'm sorry. Thank you. No, 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 Betty. That's uh, that's fine. It's really interesting. Just what you said. People want to talk about separatism, but when you uh, the Warner uh, the Kerner Commission report said we are two separate nations, one black and one white. And we hear this paradigm uh, discussed and repeated over and over again, but there's never any context, political context, for looking at this segregated, the most segregated country in the industrialized world, the United States, but that is not seen as a separate or, or, or the U.S. carrying out its agenda of separatism of that of black and white. So I, I thank you for that. So Glenn said that he would address the issue, the question about uh, the split in the ruling class. And Danny, did you want to take on something? 
the China question again uh, by uh, Danny uh, uh, as to why would anyone think that China was progressive when it had all of the uh, all of the crimes against people that was mentioned by this uh, uh, by the uh, gentleman who asked the question. Yeah, there is no fundamental split in the ruling class. That's that's why they have an agreed upon uh, unified uh, uh, vision of endless austerity and endless war. That there is no argument within the ruling class, no significant uh, argument about. Uh, but but there is a great uh, difference within that class as to how you handle the wider society. Uh, what political mechanisms are you going uh, to use? And the whole uh, of that class was thrown into disarray by this rogue element from among in their midst. Although a minor player in in their midst, he just was a media celebrity, uh, not a real player, uh, relatively speaking, in the class. But but uh, Trump, uh, with his red meat appeal to the denizens of the white man's party, if you're going to have a white man's party, I guess you, Trump said, feed him the red meat. Stop these dog whistles and teasing them. And that's what he did. And it, it worked uh, marvelously uh, and uh, just upset the whole game of the polite business class that controlled the Republican Party and up to that time. And it, it's, it's, it's interesting. They responded by, by letting loose all of their hyenas on Trump, uh, who uh, represented a big problem for them. That's not a split in the ruling class, a problem in their mechanism for rule. One of them is a Republican Party, the other is a Democratic Party. So that created that kind of problem. They responded by uh, assembling a whole menagerie of, of people to beat Trump. I think he had 16 uh, opponents, uh, but with his red meat stuff for the uh, the folks in that party, uh, he beat them all. Also, he was more, <laughs> probably even more important, he got $5 billion in free airtime from the corporate media, most of which is Democrat-associated. And uh, we know why that happened, because the WikiLeaks uh, showed us that the DNC uh, was urging its friendly reporters and everybody else to encourage the Trump campaign because they thought that he was uh, the one that they could easily beat. So Trump's success was largely a function of some other ruling class folk who thought that he would be a straw man uh, to knock down. But that's not a... That's not a split in the ruling class. There's a lot of drama that goes on that is, does not uh, qualify as a split uh, in the ruling class. But uh, they were also very, very upset uh, that uh, Trump, with his statements uh, against regime change uh, and other statements that seemed uh, to say that he, was, he would uh, bring an end to the Obama offensive, from uh, 2011 all the way to the present. It was a massive uh, imperial uh, offensive under President 
uh, Obama, getting the U.S. back on that imperial track that they had fallen off of with the uh, debacle and defeat of the United States uh, in Iraq under Bush. Uh, Obama was supposed to correct all of that and bring a new uh, face, make folks like the United States, but get back on that track of, of empire. And that's what he did. And uh, Trump, with his anti-everything Obama, including Obama's imperial charge, uh, was upsetting uh, to them. So they uh, then invested almost all their marbles. I'm talking about the national security state. We saw an unprecedented number of former and present CIA and FBI and NSA uh, people crowding into Hillary Clinton's big fat tent, overpacked tent. We saw in 2016, uh, after Trump uh, took over the mechanism of the Republican Party, that the ruling class then all crowded into the Democratic Party. It was the only functioning one of the uh, duopoly mechanisms for them to work through. And so no wonder the Democratic Party is now attacking Trump from the right. The Democratic Party is the McCarthyite party, raging a real anti-red campaign when there is no red superpower anymore, but for their own reasons. That, that party did change uh, in terms of the preponderance of the national security uh, state folks' uh, influence, uh, personified by the Mueller report. <laughs> I mean, all of it's right, it can be boiled down to that, to that document. So there are problems in the ruling class in terms of uh, how they rule. But that's not a split in the ruling class in terms of how they want to organize society. It is austerity and it is endless war and they ain't going to change because that's the only vision they got. And if uh, folks in general understood that and saw the bleak future that is in store for them, we would have revolution in the air again. So China again, um, it's a really important question, but I think what is critical to understand is that China has been completely and utterly mythologized by the U.S. ruling class that the propaganda against China is probably stronger than any propaganda that is leveled against an entire people and an entire nation. And so my definition of socialism is that the commanding heights of the economy and society are controlled by a state that is dictated by workers, peasants, and the exploited classes um, under capitalism. And so in 1949, that's what happened. It happened in its own way in China. Um, mostly a peasant-based revolution. The character of the Chinese state has not changed fundamentally, so in effect China still is by definition socialist. We can look at the reforms that were made and the contradictions to that, but there have been many benefits, as I outlined in my talk, and that there have been drawbacks. There are always drawbacks to allowing capitalist penetration. I will say that we have to understand that in global U.S.-led imperialism is the greatest threat to humanity, and it has always been the threat to socialism, whether we're talking about socialism for black America, or we're talking about socialism in China, or we're talking about socialism in the Soviet Union, or socialism in DPRK, Cuba, Venezuela, we can go down the line. 
Imperialism has always been the gravest threat. Imperialism has always shaped what the people of those nations have had to do to survive. And so we have to understand that it's not always nice, but it has to be practical and it has to work. So there is repression under socialism. It is a class struggle. And China has suppressed its ruling class. That's what it did. And it still does that today. And when we talk about some of the propaganda, I'm actually going to be going on a delegation with Cynthia McKinney in December to China for two weeks. And we're going to go to the Xinjiang province. We're going to go to the Muslim quarter. We're going to go to the regions of China that have been so vilified and demonized by uh, the U.S. media as being sites where China is containing a million Muslims and all of this, what I think is garbage. Uh, they, they have been debunked by independent analysts like my friend Ajit Singh. Uh, going there, and I'm going to also document with Cynthia and others to show that this propaganda against China is really a propaganda against us. It's really about un- making sure that we're isolated and that we are unable to make uh, relations of solidarity with the people of the world because we constantly think that we're more exceptional than them and that we know better, that we in the United States know better. But really, our base of knowledge is mostly coming from sources that are completely not only unverifiable, but illegitimate based on where they're coming from. That's the mouthpieces of the ruling class. Thank you all for your insights and your moving words. Uh, I'm currently reading uh, Huey Newton's To Die for the People, uh, and that informs the questions that I want to ask you. Um, I'm fascinated by uh, Newton's analysis of intercommunalism. Uh, the need for marginalized communities in different parts of the world to work together to make revolution. And so I'm curious as to what you have to say about black liberation in connection with the liberation of other oppressed peoples at the community level as opposed to the nation state level. And in relation to that, uh, I'd like to hear what you have to say about the need for self-defense, including armed self-defense, to be a part In terms of armed self-defense, almost anything one says about armed self-defense will get your your number ratcheted ratcheted up a little bit higher in the uh, list of black identity extremists. Uh, This black identity extremist category uh, seems to be, in the wording of the FBI, a bigger catch-all uh, than even under uh, COINTELPRO. Uh, that is, the uh, organizations that they describe as black identity extremists, or potentially so, even the NAACP uh, could fit uh, into that category, uh, which gives them carte blanche to take these extra measures. I don't know what's extra for the FBI, uh, but these extraordinary measures against this, these extraordinary threats uh, against all black people. That's significant. And it's also significant that it's kind of, it's clear uh, that that, this new regime, I guess, in, in the FBI, this new uh, package or of, uh, of uh, uh, dealing specifically with black people was formulated in the last parts of the Obama administration uh, in the wake of the Ferguson uh, activities. Uh, and then only surfaced uh, in the year or in, the, in several months after Obama left. So that's, I think, part of Obama's legacy. Now, I'm, I'm uh, mentioning black identity extremism and, and such uh, 
not to sidestep your, your question on what's my position on armed resistance, but to just put it into context. So what do you want me to say? Of course, I mean, I'm, I was in the Black Panther Party as well in New Jersey. Clearly, of course, we believe in the right to self-defense. Of course, that, that is a human right to self-defense. So there's nothing really strange about that. Shouldn't be anything very controversial about that, especially in the country that has more guns in the streets than any other country in the world by far. But it does change your status. It does make uh, the powers that sleuth and slither become more intense uh, in their activities. Uh, so I don't know what you want me to do, bro. <laughs> Yeah, we have a right to self-defense, and I encourage people to use it as appropriate. Now, isn't that the safest statement in the world? No, not in the United States, <laughs> especially in the context of this brother has uh, me leading a separatist uh, revolution as well. And so there's a whole new file. Anyway. You're a member of the Republic of New Africa, huh? Yes, I, I did want to respond to your, uh, your question about international solidarity. It's vital. It's one of the things that black people lost with uh, Obama's election. One of the reasons, I, I touched on this a little, um, that uh, uh, black people always saw the world differently is that we saw ourselves in relation to people all over the world. And it could have been apartheid in South Africa. It could have been in Cuba. It could have been anywhere. Um, but uh, it's, it's going to be an effort to regain that. There's been so much confusion uh, since his election, and now with people, some I, I don't even want to reference their name, misguided people talking about reparations, but from a standpoint of black people being Americans and identifying with this country and seeing themselves in opposition to people from other parts of the world. So we've, we've got a, a hill to climb. But uh, I think we can. That's, that's why we're here. That's why we have Black Agenda Report. That's why we take every opportunity to speak so that when uh, black people again say our and we, when we use the first person, that we're talking about people in Venezuela who uh, literally can't get food and medicine because of this government, that we're talking about people in Iran who are in the same situation, in Zimbabwe, whose liberation struggle was something that was so important to us. So yes, you're, you're absolutely right. That is something that's essential. Every nation targeted by the U.S. There's such a long list. It's hard to, to name them all, but every nation targeted uh, by the U.S., we only have a couple of minutes left, I think uh, less than five. Uh, also, Margaret pointed out in one of her columns that 40,000 people in Venezuela have died as a result of the sanctions. Uh, Danny? So I just want to say to your question, um, I love Huey Newton. That was actually the book that led me down the path of socialism and into the embrace of Black Agenda Report. Um, to Die for the People actually has an essay in it where Huey Newton writes to the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam where he actually invites Vietnam to take Black Panther Party members to fight on the side of the Vietnamese. Of course, the Vietnamese said, no, you need to stay here and do your, do your thing in the United States. You've got an empire to defeat. But 
I think that sentiment is critical, that understanding. That, that's concrete solidarity, and we need to learn from that. We're not organized enough to do that just yet. Thank you. everyone uh, for coming. We hope that you have enjoyed not only this session, but you are taking away uh, something. And very quickly, one thing we have to remember about China is that China, along with Russia, are looking to end the U.S. dollar uh, monopoly of the global economy. I mean, that, that to me appears to be a big deal because if that dollar no longer dominates, then my goodness, maybe there goes sanctions. All right, folks, thank you so much.